This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune in to your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org. Israel has declared war. That's as their soldiers battle Hamas fighters in the streets of southern Israel and launch airstrikes on Gaza. Death tolls are hard to verify, but hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians have been killed. As many as 100 Israeli soldiers and civilians have been taken hostage. U.S. officials are working to verify reports of Americans among the dead and missing. At least nine deaths have been confirmed by the State Department. The circumstances of those deaths are not clear. Not since Syrian and Egyptian forces crossed the southern border on Yom Kippur in 1973 has Israel reeled from such a heavy and deadly assault. On today's program, we want to take you through the events of the weekend, provide you with some context, and update you on the U.S. response thus far. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Let's get into it. Joining us for the conversation is Joyce Karam. She's senior news editor at Al Monitor. She also writes the China Middle East Briefing Newsletter. And Charles Lister, counterterrorism director at the Middle East Institute. That's a nonpartisan think tank focused on the Middle East. Thank you both for joining us. So let's start with what happened on Saturday when the Palestinian militant group Hamas launched what they call, quote, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood against Israel. Charles, what reason did they give for this action? 
Well, the same reason, I think, that, that Hamas and, and like-minded groups uh, have used for a long time, which is to sustain what they see as, the, as, as their perception of the Palestinian cause, to, uh, to fight uh, and ultimately defeat uh, Israel uh, and proclaim Palestinian statehood. So it's a continuation, as far as they're concerned, of their long-running struggle. But of course, there's a deeper context here uh, in which the Palestinian cause has been sort of left by the wayside over the last several years, as the US in particular has led diplomatic initiatives aimed at bringing regional states across the Middle East back into diplomatic ties uh, with Israel. Um, and, and through those initiatives, um, the, the idea of there ever being a sort of two-state solution or a resolution to the Israel-Palestinian conflict has, has really kind of just been shoved under a rug. And I think that has really bub- been bubbling away over the last several years and particularly over the last 12 to 18 months. And that, I think, really paved a path for something that has been as dramatic uh, and brutal and as deadly as we've just seen over the past 48 hours. Well, in response to that attack, the Israeli army launched what it called Operation Iron Swords against Hamas in Gaza. In response, the Israeli army launched what it called Operation Iron Swords against Hamas in Gaza. Sharon Haskell, a member of the Knesset for the centrist National Unity Party, spoke to the BBC on Sunday. Knesset is the Israeli legislative body. This wasn't just a declaration of war by Hamas. These were war crimes that were committed against innocent civilians. Hamas has infiltrated 22 towns, going from house to house, butchering and murdering entire families. They have taken hostages, entire families with women and children into the Gaza Strip. You can see videos on social media that they are publishing where women are being abused. These are crimes against humanity. Joyce, the Israeli Knesset approved the declaration of war on Sunday. What does that declaration mean for this conflict? Uh, Well, Jen, we are looking at a very uh, steep and hard escalation when it comes to Israel and uh, the Gaza uh, Strip. Israel has carried... Uh, over three ground operations in, in Gaza since Hamas took over in 2007, but this one is already promising uh, to be much worse than the uh, ones uh, before. Uh, starting with the Hamas infiltration into Israeli towns, uh, with reports now that 700, over 700 Israelis are dead. This is a figure that's not normal in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's been since 1948 till today, the start of the conflict till today, it's the Palestinian death toll has been always higher. Uh, so that's triggering um, uh a uh, bigger reaction from the uh, Israeli side. And then when you look at the massive intelligence uh, failure on the part of the Israelis not uh, predicting this, their surveillance on the uh, Gaza border, their barrier, it didn't stand. Uh, So what we're seeing shape up now is uh, a a big operation. 300,000 reservists are uh, now on Gaza uh, border. Uh, This could take months. If, if not, I mean, weeks, if not months in in uh, in uh, meeting its goals. The goals set by the Israelis are to eliminate the Hamas threat and uh, 
take it out of power in, in Gaza. Both are very ambitious goals. Uh, not exactly sure how that will be, will be done. Gaza, as you know, is uh, an open-air prison of two million people. Uh, these people, I was speaking to a contributor of ours this morning, they don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. And airstrikes are targeting, 800 of them are targeting high-rises, are targeting houses. Uh, UN shelters already are housing tens of thousands. So we're, we're really looking at a very bad uh, situation that's unfolding on top of the U.S. casualties and uh, the hostages that are still in Gaza. And just to paint a picture, there are approximately 2.3 million Palestinians who live in Gaza. It's a tiny strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea, and it's been blockaded by Israel for 16 years. Gazan civilians have been told by the Israeli government to evacuate in anticipation of missile strikes. Hen Kudri lives in Gaza and works for Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor. And on Sunday, she spoke to the BBC. This is literally one of the funniest stuff I ever heard in my life. Where do we go? Like we're under like blockade for 17 years. We don't have access to anywhere. We have zero free- freedom of movement and we can't leave. Where, where should we go? We don't have anywhere to go to. And Israel's defense minister also said that the Gaza Strip will be put under a, quote, total blockade, including a ban on admitting food, electricity, and fuel. Charles, what options are available to Gazan civilians as they're being told to, to evacuate? Well, very few, uh, as as Joyce and 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 your uh, witness just just said. Um, it's a it, it already was a sort of largely blockaded territory. It's now looking set to be placed under a a full siege, if we believe what the Israeli Defense Minister announced this morning, uh, where he termed the whole population human animals. So I think. Uh, uh, the the threats are very real. The language from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, has has been to suggest that uh, Gazans should move out of certain areas of Gaza, uh, and I think that's Israel's way of trying to say, well, there are other places to move. But I think when you look at how heavy the airstrikes have been, even just over the past thirty six hours, um, the options are obviously extraordinarily limited, and the casualty numbers are rising very very markedly. So we have a, a, an extreme extremely grim uh, period uh, ahead of us in terms of looking at how things are going to shape up uh, in and around the Gaza Strip. And as you said, casualty numbers are difficult to confirm, but more than 490 have been killed, more than 2,700 wounded in Gaza. That's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. What sort of infrastructure do Gazans have to deal with the sick and wounded, Charles? Well, there are uh, uh, several hospitals in the Gaza Strip. Most of them are administered largely by uh, or thanks to uh, external uh, INGOs, external uh, donor funding, the United Nations. Um, but, you know, even in pe- previous conflicts, some of those hospitals have been hit, uh, you know, either on purpose or, or by accident by the Israelis. So we are in a situation where a lot of Gazans have fled um, to UN facilities in the hope that those will be protected um, and to hospitals. Uh, people are lining up all along the corridors of hospitals just waiting out uh, all of the airstrikes. Um, but it's very, very limited. Uh, it has been limited, obviously, for, for a very long time. President Joe Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu several times over the weekend. Biden told reporters that the bond between Israel and the U.S. is ironclad. In this moment of tragedy, I want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere that the United States stands with Israel. We will not ever fail to have their back. 
will make sure that they have the help their citizens need and they can continue to defend themselves. On Sunday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said he's ordered the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean to be ready to assist Israel, and that includes its approximately 5,000 soldiers and its deck of warplanes accompanied by cruisers and destroyers. Joyce, what does this move signify? This is a very strong signal uh, from the U.S. As we've seen, uh, you know, Washington do and repeated wars with, with Israel in 1967. Uh, the U.S. helped. Uh, Israel uh, prevail in that war. Uh, so what we're seeing now is just unambiguous message from the Pentagon that whatever you need on the defense side and sending the Gerald Ford uh, aircraft to the to the Mediterranean, aircraft carrier to the Mediterranean, that's also a signal to uh, Hezbollah and uh, other groups affiliated with Iran if they uh, were uh, thinking of opening other fronts uh, from uh, the at Israel, uh, that the U.S. will uh, be there uh, to uh, to help the uh, the Israelis. Uh, the other help that the Pentagon is is preparing is in form of ammunition, is in form uh, of Iron Dome uh, supplements. I think all sides are preparing for a long and difficult operation. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more of the conversation in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our discussion. At least 700 Israelis are thought to have been killed on Saturday. That's more than in the previous 19 years of this conflict. At least 430 Palestinians have been killed. Thousands on both sides have been injured. Hamas, the militant group that controls Gaza, fired as many as 3,000 rockets at Israel within 24 hours. The attack on Israel by Hamas has raised questions about a major intelligence failure. Mark Regev is former spokesperson for the Israeli prime minister. He told the BBC on Sunday that Benjamin Netanyahu can expect pressure to build on him to provide some answers. The fact that the Israeli intelligence uh, was caught off guard, that we weren't aware of, of an attack that was obviously planned and coordinated, and yet we were uh, caught with our pants down, so to speak. That, that That's unacceptable. We demand a higher standard of performance from our intelligence services for Israelis who've always taken pride in, in, in their intelligence. This is a, a, a serious blow. And then 
it's not just that, that when the attack happened, even though it happened unexpected, the feeling in the country is the response of the IDF wasn't quick enough, wasn't effective enough. And the fact that as we speak now, not all the terrorists who are operating inside Israeli territory have, have been apprehended. But there are other people watching. Hezbollah in Lebanon is watching. The Iranians are watching. If Israel is not seen to have here in the end, after facing uh, what we faced yesterday and the casualties that we took, if we, if we aren't seen as coming out of this on top, that's bad for Israel on all sorts of other fronts. Uh, and it's imperative that Hamas is delivered decisive blows. Charles, what sort of pressure will Benjamin Netanyahu face in the aftermath of this attack? Well, I think the pressure, I mean, given the, the shock and the almost unprecedented nature of this attack, the sheer brutality, the fact that it's all been aired on on videos across social media, making it far more visible than many of the, the wars that took place um, on an equal scale decades ago, uh, means that domestically there's a great deal of pressure to sort of uh, this is how it's being described, sort of finally uh, and ultimately resolve the Gaza challenge, which is why we're starting to hear, you know, such aggressive rhetoric coming from some at least of the national security establishment in Israel, including, as I say, the defense minister this morning, who said that the Gazan people were human animals um, and that only a, a full-scale siege and a ground incursion would be would re- finally resolve this this challenge. And so, on the one hand, Netanyahu and his government face that domestic pressure uh, to act aggressively in response. But on the other hand, of course, there's the reality that dozens, if not more than 100 Israeli hostages have been brought back across the border into Gaza, which also places Netanyahu's hands behind his back um, and makes it extremely difficult to consider some of those more dramatic options like a, like a ground incursion. So it is really, really difficult. And that's obviously not to not to also include the fact that it, there's the prospect here for the conflict to spill over more broadly with some clashes going on on the Lebanon border, potentially even the involvement of, of Iranian-controlled proxies in Syria. So it's a really, really complicated, almost impossible set of uh, security dilemmas for the Israeli government to, to deal with here. You, you mentioned there are reports today of clashes around the Israel-Lebanon border, and the Israeli government has said it's killed armed infiltrators entering the country from Lebanon. And as a reminder, the Hamas militants who attacked Israel on Saturday abducted an unconfirmed number of Israelis, both civilians and soldiers, and brought them back to Gaza. A few have been identified either through videos posted to social media or through interviews with their families on Israeli television, but many are still unnamed. Charles, I just want you to pull on that thread a little bit more. You mentioned how having hostages in Gaza may put some limitations on Israel's response. What might Hamas want in exchange for these hostages? Well, that's, you know, sort of the billion-dollar question, because in, in the past there have been hostage situations. Of course, the famous case of Gilad Shalit, who was taken in, in 2006, he was ultimately released for around a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners, and it took five years to negotiate that release, the fact that we're t- talking in numbers far, uh, you know, bigger in scale, makes this an almost impossible challenge to to consider how it will be resolved. Now, the, the the Qatari government has confirmed just very recently, in the last hour or so, that they are trying to to mediate and negotiate uh, some form of de-escalation, but also uh, potentially the release of, of female and elderly hostages. So there is a sort of external element here that could try to encourage. 
um, some positive steps in that direction. Um, but but it's very, very difficult. I think Hamas is, is signalling that it isn't willing to consider prisoner releases because I think it knows just how valuable these hostages are uh, as leverage. So at the moment, they will hold tight. I imagine most of them are being concealed in, in tunnel networks uh, across Gaza. Um, and But every single Israeli heavy strike, including and particularly the ones that level uh, entire buildings, um, you know, poses a sort of existential threat to the lives of many of these hostages who, who could very well be caught up in that conflict. Hence me describing this as an almost impossible security dilemma from an Israeli perspective. I want to get a little more context around Hamas and, and who they are. They've been in power in the Gaza Strip since 2007. That's after a brief war against Fatah forces loyal to President Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority and Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO. Charles, how has Hamas ruled Gaza since then? Well, they've ruled Gaza, I think, like uh, like you would imagine uh, from a political Islamist uh, militant uh, organization um, with 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 a sort of heavy Islamist uh, lean domestically, um, but always with this guise of uh, of the fact that they are there as a resistance movement to fight against the occupation, uh, to fight against Israel. Of course, they maintain the opening line of their constitution being that it is on their agenda to destroy the state of Israel. So that kind of ideological or philosophical. Um, uh, uh, you know, definition of their existence, I think, frames a lot a, a, about how they present themselves, quote unquote, domestically uh, within the Gaza Strip. But of course, the people living in Gaza have had to have had to live through the consequences of being ruled by an organisation that has repeatedly, since two thousand and seven, sought out uh, conflict with Israel. And of course, as we know, whenever that's happened, it's been the civilians inside Gaza who have suffered the most through uh, Israeli air campaigns. Um, this one, frankly, is, looks likely to be the absolute worst. Um, what's really intriguing, though, about Hamas is that in the last 18 months or so, uh, and I've heard this from in you know discussions with senior Israeli officials, uh, senior Qatari officials who play a very significant sort of mediation role vis-a-vis um, -vis Hamas and, and Gaza, that over the last 18 months ago or so, Hamas has been presenting itself uh, as far more pragmatic than it has been in the past. Um, there have been a bunch of flare-ups over the last year or so between militant groups in Gaza and Israel. And in all of them, Hamas has stood by the wayside and refused to join in the hostilities. And Israeli security officials have been very open about that. And they've said, Hamas has told us behind the scenes, they will not get involved. They don't see it in their interests to sustain conflict. And so there's been this perception amidst the sort of international community that Hamas was changing uh, and that at some point down the line, maybe some form of negotiations would become more realistic. But looking at what's happened over the past 48 hours, I think you can only conclude that either there was a minority wing pushing that idea within Hamas or it was all a ruse to sort of create the breathing space and the surprise uh, element here for for an attack just like this. And so there's a lot of sort of reassessment going on right now uh, about who Hamas is, what they represent, um, and, and how to deal with them. And I think the prospect of, of sort of meaningful diplomacy uh, has frankly sort of disappeared. We're going to head to a quick break here. When we return, we take a look at how the U.S. and the rest of the world is responding. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. 
From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Let's get back to the news we've been watching since Saturday. As you've heard, Hamas militants delivered a deadly and psychological shock to Israel. The attack raises questions about Israel's army and its intelligence services. The international community is responding. On Sunday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said he's ordered the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean to be ready to assist Israel. That includes its approximately 5,000 soldiers and its deck of warplanes accompanied by cruisers and destroyers. This morning, the European Commission announced it's put all its development financing for the Palestinian territories under review. Those funds are used to build essential services for Palestinians like infrastructure. The EU is a major donor to Palestine and has pledged more than $1.8 billion in financial support from 2021 to 2024 in joint programs for the West Bank and Gaza. And now let's bring in Robbie Grammer. He's a diplomacy and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Robbie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So as we've said, Hamas's attack occurred a day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur or October War, but seemingly no one expected Hamas to launch such a deadly assault. What questions does this raise for U.S. intelligence services? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's three key questions here. Um, the, the first is, how did this happen? This is clearly a massive intelligence failure uh, for Israel, as well as for the United States. Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, just about 10 days ago was, was boasting about how, in relative terms, the Middle East was the quietest it's been in decades. So it's clear the U.S. was cut completely flat-footed. Um, the second question I think that U.S. policymakers are really focused on is to what extent did Iran have knowledge of or support this massive attack? Iran is obviously a primary backer and financier of Hamas, but was it a tacit green light or was it fully involved in the planning and execution? And the third is, you know, what what this counteroffensive from Israel will look like. Will it be a full-scale ground invasion of Gaza, which obviously has significant military and humanitarian impacts? As I mentioned, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has ordered a carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean near Israel and Gaza. Robbie, this is a show of strength. But other than that, do we know what role these forces might play? You know, from from what I understand from talking with U.S. defense officials, um, this will be seen as as a major deterrent effect, um, given given the types of ships and assets in this carrier strike group against groups like Hezbollah, as Joyce was saying, who are who are thinking about showing support in some way, but may not want to launch you know a full scale operation on their own. I think it's also important to contextualize this. I mean, the United States has been 
working to extricate itself from costly conflicts in the Middle East for for two decades. And and U.S. policymakers today would be more than happy to deploy those carrier strike groups to the Asia Pacific, um, you know, to, to counter China, which is a top priority for the Biden administration. But here we are being being dragged back into the Middle East again. And I think that's a really worrying concern for policymakers that the military between Russia and Ukraine and China and now the Middle East is is stretched thin with what it has. Robbie, what options does Washington have at this point politically, economically, diplomatically, if any? You know, I, I think the I think the biggest move right now from both Capitol Hill and the White House is to show support for Israel. I think there's still a lot of concern and anxiety about about what this full scale offensive, if it comes to pass in Gaza, could look like. Um, but it's also important to remember that that the the Biden administration has a has a pretty thin bench of senior people to respond to the crisis. Thanks to this nearly broken Senate confirmation process where Republicans are blocking a lot of nominees, the U.S. does not currently have a U- an ambassador in Israel, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Oman, in Kuwait, and no top State Department counterterrorism envoy for three years, no top USAID official for the Middle East for nearly three years. So it's going into this crisis response with with you know, a, a pretty limited set of people who, who can respond to it. And it won't completely derail the U.S. response, but it will make things much more difficult. And it just goes to show how, you know, hyperpartisanship and dysfunction in Washington can affect things going on abroad. Charles, what role will other countries in the region play, like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, in the weeks and months to come? Well, I think uh, there's been some some encouragement from from Secretary Blinken on a recent call um, with his Turkish counterpart uh, to to attempt uh, some Turkish mediation here. Uh, I know there's been very close coordination between the U.S. and Qatar uh, to try to uh, encourage the Qataris to play their traditional mediation role. Uh, probably likewise with Egypt too. Um, I think that's generally been the U.S. approach, which has been we're, it's our job to encourage others in the region. Uh, to try to mediate this, um, given our uh, more recent uh, resistance or, or reluctance to, to directly get involved ourselves. But regionally, I think it places a lot of regional states in a pretty complicated position. Obviously, just a few days ago, all of the sort of Middle East focused uh, analysts and media attention was focused on the prospects for an Israel uh, Saudi uh, rapprochement and re establishment of diplomatic ties. I think this development places the Saudi uh, decision making. Uh, you know, calculus in a very tricky position. Um, and I think it's been interesting to see indications that that seems to be foremost on the Biden administration's agenda, which is to not see that derailed. And I think there's some problems to that, frankly. I think the fact that uh, this this situation has spiraled to such an extent is emblematic of the fact that our, our approach diplomatically in the region has been to more or less push the root causes of crises under the rug uh, and encourage government simply at the top level um, to, to re-engage. And I think that is where we see these flare-ups. And, and it's not just necessarily in this case with Gaza, but all across the region, many of these unresolved crises could easily see similar developments in the coming years. Donald Trump and other Republicans have criticized a $6 billion prisoner swap deal between the U.S. and Iran following Hamas's attacks on Israel. And they've attempted to draw a connection between the two. The former president said in a statement over the weekend, quote, American taxpayer dollars helped fund these attacks. That drew this response from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was asked about those comments when he spoke to Kristen Welker on NBC's Meet the Press. Here are the facts. Uh, the facts are that 
these were these were not U.S. taxpayer dollars. These were Iranian resources that it had accumulated from the sale of its oil that were stuck in a bank in South Korea from day one under our law, under our sanctions uh, going back many years. It's always had the uh, the right to use those funds for humanitarian purposes, for food, for medicine, for medical equipment. Not a single cent has been spent from that account. When any money is spent from that account, it can only be used for medical supplies, for food, for medicine. And those who are saying otherwise are either misinformed or misinforming. And it's wrong either way. Charles, your response to what we're hearing from some Republican lawmakers and and former uh, presidents and, and what we just heard from Secretary Blinken. I think, frankly, Secretary Blinken is right here. Uh, I think it is mostly sort of opportunistic uh, disinformation. Uh, I think there are questions to ask uh, about giving uh, uh, Iran a a free hand, and and there's a broader debate to be had about some of this, the Biden administration's argument that this money can be used entirely for humanitarian purposes and therefore won't, uh, you know, encourage more malign Iranian activity, doesn't really stand up. Money is fungible. If they have less money yesterday, but now they have more, and even if it has to be spent on humanitarian aid, well, then there's other money left over uh, elsewhere that could be spent on other things. But but here specifically, there's absolutely no correlation that anyone uh, that I know can see uh, between that recent uh, agreement uh, with Iran and uh, the attack committed by by Hamas. I don't. I do think Iran has had a hand in this. I think when you look at the drones um, that that Hamas has shown off in recent videos post this attack, uh, clearly Iranian technology. Um, no secret that many of the tactics that have been employed by Hamas are the very same tactics that Iran has encouraged in its training camps with proxies that are present in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. Um, but but that is, uh, I guess, apples and oranges. Uh, situation in terms of what the Republican figures are trying to allege. Joyce, what's the best and worst case scenario for this in the coming weeks? Well, I'm not sure there is a any good scenario out of the out of this. I think the best maybe would be the least amount of uh, civilian casualties on on both sides and a quick uh, conclusion for uh, for this war. But as we've discussed, this is uh, extremely unlikely. So. You know, we better fasten our seatbelts and uh, just, yeah, just uh, uh, pray for the civilians on both sides of this conflict. But, yeah, it's it's uh, the escalation is real, and uh, uh, this promises to be the largest uh, Hamas-Israel confrontation. Well, the U.N. Office for the Middle East Peace Process said on X Sunday, quote, priority now is to avoid further loss of civilian life and deliver much needed humanitarian aid to the Strip. The U.N. remains actively engaged to advance these efforts. Charles, I'll, I'll give you the last uh, word here as someone who studies this region. What are the questions we should be asking right now? I think the questions uh, is how do we ultimately resolve crises like this? The Israeli-Palestinian crisis has been going on for decades. We haven't resolved it because we've shoved aside the root causes and we've not taken some of the diplomacy more seriously. Uh, And whether we look at Israel-Palestine or Syria or Yemen or many of the other crises around the region, if we continue to ignore the root causes and the drivers of conflict, we'll continue to have these debilitating flare-ups in which mostly the civilians are those who suffer the most. And each one we see, conflict continues and sustains into the long term. 
That's Charles Lister. He's counterterrorism director at the Middle East Institute. Also with us, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at El Monitor, and Robbie Grammer, a diplomacy and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Joyce, Charles, Robbie, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producers were Maya Garg and Aileen Humphreys. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.